Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 75 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Ah, uh, hello, hello, and thank you, BB, for that wonderful introduction. I'm Shannon Riley, and welcome to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. The only place where you're going to find a man talking about Shakespeare on Sunday mornings and evenings. Like a crazy person. <laughs> but I am. I happen to love William Shakespeare and everything that he wrote. Well, not everything, but most things. And I'm here to talk a little bit about his plays and give you some insight to them and hopefully lead you on to read them yourself. Today, I continue on my quest to talk about William Shakespeare's plays in order, as best as I can guess the order. And we're still in the mid 1590s, around 1596, 1597, and this is his next history play, and it's called The Tragedy of King John. I know you do not know this play, and that's okay. It's probably one of the least well-known plays, if not the least known play, of William Shakespeare's canon. As a matter of fact, it was performed quite a great deal in the 18th century, um, started to dip off in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, it just really has very, very seldom ever been performed. And there's a couple of reasons for that that I'm going to get into after the break. But I think it's an, a very interesting play. It's the only play other than Richard II that's written entirely in verse, uh, which makes it kind of a heady play to read. If you have a chance to watch it, I prefer you watch it because it really is uh, complex. The language is strong. Um, and so, uh, and the characters come and go so fast, and many of them have very similar names. So I'm going to go through some of this uh, in the synopsis, but the thing about King John is that it seems to have been a play that Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's men, already had. The play in question is called The Troublesome Reign of King John. And according to some records, the Lord Chamberlain men had this play before Shakespeare wrote his own version of the play called The Tragedy of King John. So why? Why did Shakespeare go back and rewrite a play they already owned? 
Some scholars believe that the troublesome reign of John came after Shakespeare's play. We do know that King John was never published during Shakespeare's lifetime. It only appeared in publication for the first time when the first folio was published in 1623. That could mean A, they kept it in their repertoire and performed it for many, many years. B, they didn't publish it because they didn't think anyone would buy it, which is possible. Or C, the they were involved in producing the other play, The Troublesome Reign of King John, first, and that was the play that they had committed to memory. Keep in mind, when you learned a play as a group of actors, you kept that play in your memory and you used it for many years, at least until it stopped selling, and then, more than likely, you published it. King John was never published. So why would Shakespeare go and write a new version of a play they already had and already had committed to memory? And that's one of the big questions about King John. But there are a couple of theories to why he did this, and it has to do with my mantra that you've heard me say over and over again on this program. You have to remember the period in which Shakespeare was writing. He wasn't writing for our audience. He was writing for an Elizabethan audience. And that makes all the difference when you think of the story of King John. First, though, before we get too far into the story of King John, my son wants to tell you what it's time for. Take it away, Finn. And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right. It's time for our Shakespeare quote of the week. And I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite quotes. It comes from a very unknown play. But I love this quote. It's spoken by Constance, mother of Arthur, who was killed in the play. And he's a 15-year-old boy. And she is riddled with grief over his death. And she gives this speech that I just think is beautiful. Grief fills the room up of my absent child. Lies in his bed. Walks up and down with me. Puts on his pretty looks. Repeats his words. Remembers me of all of his gracious parts. Stuffs out his vacant garments with his form. That's from Act 3, Scene 4. And that's spoken by Constance, mother of Arthur, who should have been king. Um, And I think it's one of the most beautiful speeches about the loss of a child. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so let me tell you what the play is about And as I give you a very quick synopsis here. This is the play King John by William Shakespeare. First of all, this is his earliest set history. It takes place in 1199 to about 1216, somewhere in that area. This is firmly in the Middle Ages, and this deals with King John, which, as many of you might know, the horrible Prince John, younger brother of Richard the Lionhearted, who to this day is considered one of the worst kings in history of England. He, by all accounts, was not a good king, but he might not have been as villainous as history has painted him. Of course, in this play, Shakespeare does not paint a very nice picture of John. The play opens that Richard I is dead, and a succession is in question. Now, King John has been filling in the job being king while Richard is off doing all of his conquests during the Crusades. However, at this particular time, when Richard dies, he has no heirs. And so King John assumes the throne. But King John was the fifth child of Henry II and Queen Eleanor. And there was another son ahead of him, Prince Geoffrey. Now, Prince Geoffrey dies before Richard I dies, so he never has a chance to become king. He has an accident on a horse. But he has a son named Arthur. And according to the rights of succession, Arthur should then become king. But King John 
says no. He's a 15-year-old boy, and I've been practicing as king during the absence of Richard I all these years. I am now king. So the play opens as an emissary from France, from King Philip, arrives to tell the king that he will, uh, he must abdicate the throne and give the crown to Arthur, or France will go to war because it's just not right that John is the king. The real reason is, of course, France thinks they can maintain control over Arthur a lot easier than they can John. Now, keep in mind, this is a Plantagenet king, and a Plantagenet king means he's mainly French. French was a language spoken at court. A great deal of England was joined to France. As a matter of fact, large areas of France were under the control of the English king at this particular time. And King Philip wants that land back from England. Anyway, John says, Heck no, you can't take my crown, and I am not abdicating. I refuse to give this crown over to this boy, Arthur. So, the emissary goes back to Philip, and Philip, of course, declares war. Next to enter the throne room are two brothers, John Falconbridge and Philip Falconbridge. Philip is the older brother, and John Falconbridge wants to have control of the family fortune since he believes Philip to be a bastard. Through the rest of the play, by the way, Philip is simply called the bastard. Philip, of course, says he is not a bastard and that he deserves all the money that is left in his inheritance. His brother says he looks nothing like my father. He was obviously the illegitimate son of King Richard. Just then, Queen Eleanor enters and sees him and thinks he's a spitting image of Richard. They send for Falconbridge's mother, and her mother at first protests that she's being called such a wanton, but in the end agrees, yes indeed, she did have a night of passion with Richard, and this is indeed his son. King John says, abandon your fortunes, join me in a campaign against France, I will knight you, and your fortunes will be greater if you join this family. So the bastard does exactly that, and even praises his mother for allowing him to be born a bastard of Richard the Lionhearted. Immediately afterwards, it's off to France to fight Philip and Arthur. They arrive in Angers at the same time that Philip has arrived in Angers. Philip has ordered the city gates of Angers to be opened to show their allegiance to Arthur and their allegiance to himself, King Philip. At the same time, King John arrives and says, No, 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 Angers, you will open those gates to me and declare your allegiance to the King of England. Angers says, Look, we don't know who's king, Arthur, John, Philip, so tell you what, you guys fight it out out there and whoever wins can come inside. Well, the two armies immediately go into fighting. There's a big battle scene, and neither side wins any territory nor loses any territory. So they both declare themselves victor. Anjay says, no, sorry, you guys keep fighting. We don't believe you. The bastard finally says, how about we all join forces and kick the crap out of Anjay and go into the city? When Anjay says, look, we got a better idea. You got the young dolphin of France, the son of King Philip. He's about the same age as the niece of King John. What if Blanche, that's her name, by the way, marries the Dauphin, then we know the succession of the King of England, and we can end this war altogether. The two kings agree to this. Blanche agrees to this. The Dauphin claims he's never known love until he saw Blanche's face, who just happens to be there. She went along with him to war for some reason. And indeed, the match is set. Constance, Arthur's mother, is furious. And she says, no, you were uh, abandoning my son Arthur's claim to the throne. This marriage will solidify John on the throne of England and will give lands to Louis, the Dauphin in France, but leave Arthur completely out. Well, just then, Cardinal Pandolf arrives from Rome. He's mad at John. 
He says that John has not appointed the person. Pope is wanted to be Archbishop of Canterbury. And John says, I don't have to listen to any Pope in Rome, and I will appoint who I decide needs to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Cardinal Pandolf says, fine, you're excommunicated. Pandolf says to the French king, if you end your uh, hostilities with English king right now, you too will also be excommunicated. Well, Philip doesn't want that, so he agrees to once again continue hostilities, and the war is back on. So the bastard starts his battle in earnest, and he comes up against Nimagus, the Duke of Austria. And the Duke of Austria is largely to blame for the death of Richard I. It's believed he's the one who fired the arrow that killed him. So, of course, the bastard son starts to fight with him as well, and cuts his head off, and makes a giant victory for the King of England. Also, in the meantime, Arthur himself is captured, and King John tells his faithful servant, Humbert, to take Arthur back to his castle and, with a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, finish him off. It doesn't come right out and say kill Arthur, but it's hinted. Away, Humbert takes Arthur to his castle. While at his castle, he says, I'm going to gouge your eyes out. I'm going to kill you. Arthur says, you don't want to do that. You're on the wrong side of history. I am the true king of England. Besides, I'm just a 15-year-old boy. You don't want to kill me. Humbert decides, you know what, you're right. I maybe don't want to do this. Tell you what, let's make a deal. You hide out here in my castle. I'm going to go back and tell the king you're dead. And at the end of the war, we're going to see where we're at. And so Umber heads off. Meanwhile, back in England, all the lords are furious with King John over the death of Arthur. They believe King John has captured him and has put him to death. Immediately, King John claims, absolutely, I did not. He is not dead. He's alive and well with, with Umber. Umber arrives just then to say, congratulations, I killed Arthur. All the lords are furious and declare that they are going to go and support the French in this war, and they march out. King John says, Umber, why did you kill Arthur? And he says, actually, I didn't. I thought that's what you wanted, but I I, I kept him alive. And he says, quick, run after the lords and tell. So Umber goes after the lords and says, Arthur's still alive. I can take you to him. They head to go see Arthur, who in the meantime tries to escape the castle by climbing out a window and jumping off a wall. He does not survive. He dies on the rocks below, and when the lords arrive at the castle and find his dead body, they head off to France with their forces to join up with King Philip against England. John is beside himself. He's going to lose the war. He's going to lose his crown. He even goes so far as to make a deal with the Pope through Cardinal Pandolf. He says, I promise I'll do everything Rome wants me to do from here on out if you just get me out of this war. Cardinal says, I'll see what I can do, and he heads back out the door to try and talk to Philip. The bastard comes back, finds John just a mess, and says, you're obviously not the king I thought you were. I thought you were strong. What England needs is a strong leader. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to finish off the French. Now, the French have superior forces, but the French noblemen are upset about the English noblemen who are fighting alongside them and don't trust them. So Philip promises after the war is over, he'll behead them all and give their property to the French. So the French are pretty happy about that. But then the war starts to go south for the French. They are losing battles. A supply shipment to the war effort shipwrecks and doesn't ever arrive. And Philip's forces are falling apart. To make this worse, one of the dying French noblemen confesses to the English nobleman that, hey, by the way, when this war is over, Philip's going to cut your heads off and take your lands. So they immediately head back to rejoin John. John, in the meantime, is in an abbey. He is sick, depressed, feverish, and the bastard shows up to tell him that the war is not going well, that it's probably likely that they're all going to die. Just then enters Cardinal Bandoff, who has in his hand a treaty from France. But it's too late for King John. He's been poisoned by a vicious monk who himself has committed suicide. And now 
King John is dead. Everybody declares his son, the Prince Henry, to be King Henry III of England. And the play ends with the bastard giving the strongest speech, saying that this whole thing could have been avoided through strength of leadership, trust, and unity. We as a nation, England, must remain unified. And that is the story of King John. So, what does it all mean? Let's talk about that on the other half of this break. I'm Shannon Riley, and you're listening to Shannon's Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75Live.com. And I'll be back after this short break. Hello again, and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75Live.com. I'm Shannon Riley. I am a devotee of Shakespeare. I wouldn't say that I'm a scholar, but I would say that I am a fanatic of William Shakespeare's. And if you'd like to ask me a question or talk to me about the show, or if you have ideas for future shows, or just want to shoot the breeze, then please reach out to me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. I would love to hear from anyone out there who would like to talk about the show. And also, while you're at ShannonJRiley.com, feel free to poke around my website, look at my short films, some of my plays, and maybe consider doing them if you're connected with the theater. I'd love that even more. All right, so let's talk a little bit about King John, why it's here and why it's not here. And I'm going to start, first of all, by putting one argument aside. What came first, the tragedy of King John by William Shakespeare or the troublesome reign of King John by an unknown playwright? Which, by the way, some scholars even think that might have been Shakespeare. I doubt that. Right now, I'm not too focused on which play came first, simply because there's no argument which play Hemings and Condell, Shakespeare's good friends, thought deserved to be published in the first folio. And that's The Tragedy of King John, this play. So they recognized that was Shakespeare's play, and that was a play that needed to be included in his first folio. So... This is his play, and let's talk about his play and why he did it. There's a couple of things that are very interesting about this play that I want to talk about first. First of all, Shakespeare rewrites history. Again, this goes back. It's it's a story that's over 200 years old by the time Shakespeare's writing it. And so this is a story that was kind of well-known by the public, but maybe not deeply well-known by the public. Maybe if some people did see a previous play version of it, they might have been reminded. But certain aspects of history are not included. For instance, the nobles forcing King John to sign the Magna Carta. That's nowhere in the play. Shakespeare doesn't even use it. As a matter of fact, when the noblemen are throwing a tantrum and trying to force King John to do what they want him to do, it's over the death of Arthur. In truth, Arthur did die, but he died many, many years before this particular event took place. So there's a a, a little trade-off that Shakespeare does by throwing out the Magna Carta, which would have meant very little to the common people of Shakespeare's time, standing in the groundlings area listening to the play, whereas the death of Arthur would have been much more important. So Shakespeare does a very logical thing as a playwright and imports an element of history to a different time to push his plan. Secondly, King John was probably not a good king. But when you're going to write a play about King John, you got to have a hero. And that's the first big problem Shakespeare has in this history. Again, I don't know why he did this history. It's so far back from any of the other histories in terms of time. It's not connected to the tetralogies of Henry the 
and Henry VI. It's not connected to any of the Richards. It's standalone history, much like King Henry VIII is much later in his career. So why does he write this? And I think I have stumbled across a theory, not not necessarily my theory, but a theory that some scholars believe and I buy into of why he writes this play right now. The first thing is, is that Going back to that hero, King John can't be the hero. He was seen as a horrible king and remembered as a horrible king at the time Shakespeare's writing this play. Richard the Lionhearted, on the other hand, is remembered as a great and powerful king who worked hard in his crusades to save the Holy Land from the infidels. But Richard's dead, so who does he make the hero? Well, he can't do King Philip. There's the last thing you need to do in England is have the hero be the French king. And it can't be Arthur, because Arthur's going to die. So you need someone to fill in that role. So Shakespeare invents a hero in The Bastard. What's interesting about this play is this play is named King John, and yet King John doesn't have near the lines that The Bastard has. The Bastard has all the major lines. Uh, He has 80 more lines in King John, and he ends Acts 2, 3, and 5 with his own speech. The bastard acts as our narrator, our conscience. He tells us what's going on in the play and even reacts to things emotionally, morally. He condemns the actions of King John to his face for being a coward and a child. He condemns the French for what they're doing and for the death of his father and beheads one of them. He becomes this powerful, masterful hero. And in the end, he inherits nothing. Well, he can't. It's a history play. There is no bastard. So he serves more or less as our guidepost, that person that we react to and respond to. He is our hero. And that's the first invention of a character. There's another invention of the character that is pretty fascinating and has to do with Richard I, the Lionhearted. Now, even in Shakespeare's time, the rumors that Richard I, the Lionhearted, was actually a gay man, did leave no heirs when he died, and he was off on these crusades. Matter of fact, many people have believed that King Philip of France was one of his former lovers. The Richard the Lionhearted was considered a great hero, but by creating this bastard character, Shakespeare reinvents him, and he's able to put Richard the First right back in the middle of things in the guise of his son, at the same time, erase this horrible rumor that he had no children, that he himself might have been homosexual. It's a masterful stroke on Shakespeare's part. But he, there's another character that he creates due to Richard I, and that is the Duke of Austria. Now, this actually is two different people, which is kind of fascinating in and of itself. During the Crusades, when Richard was returning to England, he got captured by the Duke of Austria, who held him ransom. And King John, who was filling in as king in England at the time, took his sweet time paying the ransom. He didn't necessarily want Richard back, because he'd have to give up the throne. It was only the pressure from the church and the pressure from noblemen that John eventually paid the ransom, and Richard was able to come home. Later, Richard goes on a campaign again into France to try and find this chest of gold that's supposedly inside this castle that's hidden uh, by a man by the name of Leopold, Viscount Leopold. And unfortunately... He gets killed. He gets shot in his shoulder with an arrow, and it infects him, and he dies. So these two characters, 
become the Duke of Austria in the play. As a matter of fact, he walks around wearing a mane of a lion and the, the skin of a lion just to further implicate that he is indeed the man who killed Richard I. And of course, when the bastard cuts off his head and carries it in and throws it on the ground, the audience must have gone crazy. The great hero of Richard I, the Lionhearted, his death has been avenged and has been avenged by his bastard son. But the questions in this play are very important questions to the Elizabethans. And here's what it is. Everyone in this play has a crisis of faith, of who they are and who they belong to be. Everyone, from Blanche, who is married off to the Dauphin, who says, no matter who wins this war, I lose, because she came from England and she's now married to France. And of course you have Henry. Is he really king? Or is Arthur? And in the meantime, the bastard who has lived his whole life not knowing that he was who he was is also trying to discover what this might mean. And this self-discovery that goes on through the whole play and through all these different characters culminates into what the Elizabethans were going through. Keep in mind, this is the end of the 1500s. Elizabeth is on the throne and the biggest question going on is how can she hold it? How can a woman maintain the crown, particularly when she's up against so many Catholic nations? Or she's already defeated the Spanish Armada, and she is, by and large, the most powerful woman in the world. But this question of Catholicism comes up, and this leads me to who he creates, who Shakespeare creates to be the big villain of this play. The villain of this play is not King John. Matter of fact, he comes off I think looking rather pathetic. No, the big villain is the Catholic Church, as it's expressed through Cardinal Pandolf. Cardinal Pandolf stirs up trouble when no trouble exists. Just when peace is reached between England and France, he stirs up trouble. He doesn't want the Vatican to lose control of England or France. He must be the one who barters peace in our time, or he is the one who must declare war. In the end, by forcing England to abdicate, to kneel down and say, I'll do whatever the Pope wants me to do, is just his way of gaining control of the English throne. This was the main enemy Shakespeare wanted to play. And this is a message he's sending to Elizabeth in England. Queen Mary, Elizabeth's sister, was responsible for burning many people at the stake. This fight over what is Catholicism and what is Protestantism and what should be in command of England is still alive and strong. At the same period of time in history, the Pope had declared a death warrant on the Queen of England. And there were Catholic priests sneaking into the country to try to convert the masses and also to ferment ideas of raising an army to depose the Queen. Catholicism had not been usurped for that long in England at this time. So the ways of the old religion still burn very deeply in many, many people. And it was dangerous. It was dangerous to the people who were in power, and it was dangerous to the people who would have to fight the war that might come. That's what I believe King John is all about. Not the king, the play. What Shakespeare's trying to do is build unity. It ends with a bastard making a very impassioned speech that we must all be a unified country. We must all be gathered under this queen. And look at how sad this play points out the English monarchy is under the yoke of the Pope. There have been many people who have said and theorized over the years that Shakespeare was a hidden Catholic, that he really came from Catholicism and he clung to the old religion. 
There's no doubt he came from Catholicism. There's no doubt his parents were Catholic. But you know, I really, in all my years, have believed that religion was not a big component in Shakespeare's life. You know, at the time, you were required to attend church on a regular basis and you would sign the rolls and your name not appearing on the rolls at your church could clearly get you into trouble with the crown. After all these years, even though many of these church rolls are missing, his name has never been found in a single church roll in any of the churches that he would have been required to attend in the neighborhoods he lived. Likewise, many of his fellow players, their names have never been found either. Now again, the church rolls are very incomplete and have not survived, but I really think religion wasn't a major issue to Shakespeare. So why write this? Well, because politics was everything to Shakespeare. He needed to stay alive, he needed to stay vibrant, and he needed his company to be seen as the company of England. John is peppered with remarks of the danger of Catholicism. The bastard who speaks about what is the value we all should uh, aspire to speaks of unity and trust and our need to be one sovereign nation. That's why I think Shakespeare wrote King John, is to get that message across to score points, not only with Queen Elizabeth and the government of England, but also spread this message that we must be unified. It was a precarious time in Shakespeare's life, and he probably was looking to have some kind of a peace of mind. It's also why today, King John just isn't performed very often. Sure, it's pretty. It's got some really great language in it, and it's all written in prose. However, it's a convoluted story. It's filled with people we don't really know, and it is probably the least performed play of all of Shakespeare's canon. Elizabethans just would have seen this play differently than we do. And that's okay. But I don't think King John will ever have the resurgence that it once had. It's just a different world. Still, it's fun to look at. And if you want to check it out, you should. Read King John, or better yet, watch King John. It's one that I've never seen live. But uh, I don't know that I've really been in a big hurry to see it either. Thank you all for listening to Shannon Shakespeare's Sunday once again. It's been my pleasure to come to you here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. Thank you to Carice and everybody at KSEF Digital Radio. And until next time, keep it barred to the bone. 785 Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in.